Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. During the time of the coronavirus, COVID-19, I decided, as many of you know, until further notice, to dedicate the Reasonable Voices radio program to reminders of how we Americans have weathered many hardships before and came through them all stronger together. And I believe the love, the lives, the careers, and the story of my two guests today is one that will inspire hope through laughter, and maybe a few happy tears as well. I give you the Londras of New York, David and Linda. How are you two? <laughs> hello. We're good. Thank you so much for having us. Very good. Yes, hello. Hi. It's so good to have you on the show, and I, I know I'm going to have a grand time, and I'm sure the, our listeners will as well. Let's just jump right in, even before the we started the broadcast, I said to both uh, David and Linda that they're working together. Their bio is so impressive that we may not get to all of it, and we'll have to have them back. But let's see. We'll give it a shot. Here we go. I know Linda Launder, by the way, uh, very well from our working together at NBC on Another World, and David, who I didn't think I'd ever met until prepping for today's show, I received a photo of him, and reading his bio... While I appeared in only four of New York's soap operas, David Londra worked in all of them. So, uh, all the tape <laughs> Yes. So, he... And he... At one time or another, yes, I'm sure, actually, that we, that we did meet briefly, but it would have been sort of in passing on the set. Yes, that's what I'm thinking, too, because you do look familiar. But in any case, in addition to his soap opera acting, he's a magnificent photographer, which kind of reconnected Linda and me. I mean, we've reconnected a lot over the years, but, but when I saw his uh, photography... On social media, I reached out, but both Linda and David have such incredible bios, so I said this already, didn't I, uh, uh, that um, I'm going to use it and let it lead us through the Q&A. So Linda and David Londra met in an audition for Chekhov's Three Sisters. 
both were cast, and and after graduation, they were married at Ann Harbor, uh, Michigan. I don't know if that had anything to do with Chekhov or not. But then it was off to New York City to pursue their passion for theater and David's extraordinary talent that I've already mentioned for the camera. One week after arriving in NYC, their careers were in launch mode, and they are still in orbit. Linda started out as a talent agent, and David, acting in theater, television, and film, shows like uh, St. Elsewhere, Homicide, and 30 Rock. In 1975, they created the Writers' Theater in New York City, dedicated to creating new work and adaptations from great literature for the stage. Taking their opening production, The Gospel According to Mark Twain, to the Edinburgh Festival, they developed hundreds of new plays for nearly 20 years, and Writer's Theatre continues today in Chicago. Well, I've got to get a question in here. I'm because it, I know. <laughs> As I understand... Just, just hearing the list. <laughs> yes, it's something. I told you, you know. I understand, Linda, you couldn't make it to uh, an APA Phoenix interview. So what was your backup plan? Oh, this was one of the most, the funniest episodes ever. I was in Michigan, I had a very sick father, and I couldn't, and I got this audition, and you know, when you're first in the business, you just go to everything, you take every job that's offered, you just keep working, and we did. I mean, literally, within a week after we got here, we started and never stopped. And I had to be in Michigan, and this interview came up for APA Phoenix, which we had worked with, oddly enough, in Ann Arbor before we moved to New York. Mm. Uh, APA Phoenix was Alice Rabb, and they they did magnificent productions. And I mean, I was there when Glenn Close made her first appearance in New York, because it was with them. And it was magnificent people, so I really wanted this job. So I, David, David went in my on my behalf, and they hired me <laughs> through talking to him. I said I'm never going to another interview in my life. <laughs> and that amazing juncture was, I mean, he interviewed for me. I got the job. I did the job while I was there. Uh, the a casting came up with um, the wonderful Donald Moffat, uh, who was directing a show at Buffalo Studio Arena, yes. and they needed someone to help him with the casting. And of course, I was, you know, I'll do it, I'll do it. Yeah. They went, no, 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 we need you, you can't go. And I went, no, it's here, right? Yeah, I can do it. They went, no, you cannot. And I said, okay, David can do it. So... <laughs> David, so I got him the job casting with with Donald on 13 Rue de Lamour. Of course, pushing like a pushy agent would. Mm. Saying, did you give me a picture and resume? Yeah. Did you tell him that you're, did you let him know? <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, I, Donald, I had met Donald in, uh, in Ann Arbor uh-huh. with the, uh, the AP Phoenix. He was doing a show there. So um, I had met him there. And when I met him then here in New York, I mentioned that uh, I'd seen him there and um, we were, he was only seeing like a half a dozen people and I said, you know, I, I don't know this play, Edo Farce, mm-hmm. um, but if there's anything, I'm an actor, if there's anything I can do, I'd be, be happy to read for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we chatted and we did the interviews and whatever, I stage managed for him. And that was it. He mm-hmm. never uh, said anything else about it. And so I thought, well, it, obviously I'm not, there's nothing in there that I would be, uh, I would be right for. Mm-hmm. And then three days later, I got a call offering me the role of uh, Jean-Pierre opposite Donald in the uh, in the production in, in, at Buffalo. Wow. So that, that surprised me. 
So getting Linda that job that paid off for her and for me as well. Yes. <laughs> My, her, her skills are very easy to sell. That's true. That's true. She, uh, um, before going into the field, she has a business background. Yes. So she yes. types like a like hundred and twenty words a oh minute. My she, God. Oh, don't tell people yeah. that. Oh, that. No. Most people <laughs> we, we don't share that with everyone. You know, I had a similar, a less dramatic, but similar story. I, I actually drove. I was dating a, uh, an actress I had trained, actually. She was very good. At, she, she was a great singer, but they hired me because, well, she didn't act. So I said, no, don't be silly. I know she can act because I've heard her sing. She has such emotion. And I did my thing and worked and whatever, and she really, her acting career improved. Let's put it that way. But our last performance together, she had this big audition for something. I think it was IBM. And I drove her to the audition and sat in, you know, in the waiting room, whatever, and the casting director or the, the doctor, I think it had something to do with medication, uh, doctors or whatever. But the doctor came out of the audition and he looked at me and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm her driver. And he said, are you an actor? And I said, yes. And he he said, I want you to do it. <laughs> well, we never did. I know, my God, we never dated after that. Okay. Uh, back to well, that's just connecting on that link, though. What is so amazing to me about our business is in Buffalo. That is where we met in during that show because I finished up at the APA Phoenix, went up and joined David in Buffalo, uh -huh. and that's where we met Tom Fontana. Oh yes, who became a lifelong friend and one of the most successful television producers and writers. Yes alive. We were just forming the Writers Theater. Tom became our playwright in residence yes. and we actually last night just did a Zoom call with him and a group of friends from Buffalo and he is going to host a gathering for our 50th anniversary, oh. our 50th wedding anniversary. And that it just tracks through. I mean, we're talking over 40 years, yes. but one connection leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. And I just think that is remarkable about uh, our world, that we that's how we survive. Yes, that's true. I mean, it really is a... It's, well, all the dots are connected in any case. I mean, if you're in the business, especially if you're in New York, Chicago, L.A., Florida, if you're in the business, D.C. even, you know, you meet people. You meet all of the people, and people are talking about you constantly. That's why you have to be on your toes all the time to make certain they're saying good things. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> true, true. Well, and it's hard on people like us who talk a lot, uh, Marcello, because we now we're restricted to our apartment, so now we have to go on to Zoom and we have to go on on, on Skype calls and yes. telephone calls. Yes. It's uh, I my impulse, as I, I suspect yours is too, to stop and hug someone yes. on the street. Yes. Now, when you we go out for a walk every day with our masks uh -huh. and our gloves. And because that, of course, is so, we're in New York City, it's pretty bad here. And my impulse is to immediately go towards someone when I see someone I know. Mm -hmm. And it, and we immediately have to step back. Yes. It's, it's really challenging, yes. but we're doing it. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it is a good thing that it's getting better here. Yes, it is. It is. David, so yeah. yes, you were on Another World. What did you do? Were you ever in Tops? Um, no, I certainly remember Tops. I remember the set I, because Linda was producing and directing. Yes. I actually spent quite a bit of time in that studio. But no, I did. Uh, uh, I was never that interested in in in, uh, in daytime. But it was a nice source of income. So yes. I would do 
NBA players. I would do U5s. I, I would sort of bounce around and do various things on the shows. And I did quite actually quite a few voiceovers. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. My, my favorite favorite jobs were the ones where I would come in and do the the role of John, usually uh, played by Fred, oh, and being yes. played today. But, you know, and then as long as they were out, they would run that every day, and I would get lovely checks. So uh-huh. that was very nice. Well, you you you're very kind. I was I was more of a snoot. I, I I can remember when I was directing a great deal of theater up and down the East Coast, and I someone asked me, and I said, no, 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 I I wouldn't do soap operas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we theater snobs. I know, we all I know. But but you know, <laughs> e- even more than the money, and the money was nice, thank you. But the people okay. I met and got to work with, your wife in particular, but Linda Dono as well, and Charles Keating, God bless him. It was my, I think it was Anna Stewart, I once said, I just marveled at how she could take anything that was on the page and make it Shakespeare. And she's, <laughs> I won't give her answer, but, it, <laughs> but you know, there it is. But we're, what, what about homicide? That's another place our paths have crossed closely, but not as close as another world. Did, did either of you ever work with the character Roger Gaffney, who's played by Walt McPherson? No? I it, don't know. No. no. Don't believe, so that's, again, another show, because it was Tom. Yes. We, uh, um, we would go down, we, like, we went to Baltimore, and we would spend a day, uh, or a week, actually, um, on the set, just sort of watching the production and going on. Uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, that, this particular week I was talking about, one of the days they were shooting in the morgue, and they um, were supposed to have extras, but for some reason the extras hadn't been ordered. And Tom came over and dragged, grabbed me by the arm, shoved me over towards the wardrobe, and said, "Put a put a gown on him. Yeah. And he's an extra." And, uh, so I was uh, wandering around in the morgue all that. Oh my god! And then uh, eventually, I did a I did a role uh, uh, of a, a computer specialist on uh, on an episode uh, called uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Was. Hmm. I don't either, David. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say medium rare, but that was odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was odd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they all run together after a while, but it's really, mon- mon- you know, you you sit down and you remember, and it's, we could go on and on, but I'm going to skip oh, just a little. Just, God, yes. Yes. I'm going to skip just a little. While we're talking about voiceover work interrupted or not by playing doctors and morticianers or whatever, uh, David, uh, tell us a bit about Tina Fey's, uh, the work you did with Tina Fey's 30 Rock and City on the Hill. <laughs> Well, that the uh, working with uh, Tina Fey and uh, and that group was actually my favorite favorite job I've had because I did it all almost all of it just from my apartment. Uh-huh. A very good friend of ours uh, is the post producer on the show, um, and because she's known me for years and my voiceover background, and because I've done a fair amount of ADR work in the past, she I would get an email from Irene saying, "Okay, we need this line. It has to be." Uh, 1.3 seconds long to fit in here and she would send me the material I would do a couple of takes and email them back to her and uh, and that would be the job so that was that was uh, one of the and I did quite a few of those so. yeah. my favorite one you have to tell them about the plastic bag oh there's one <laughs> I just love this yes there was one storyline with uh I, I she um just had a the Tina Fey character just had a brand new apartment and she became obsessed with this plastic bag, which was caught in a tree outside of her window. Mm. And she spent 
most of an episode trying to get that plastic bag out of the tree. And eventually she has a conversation with the plastic bag. Uh-huh. And, and I, I was that plastic bag. <laughs> I knew that was coming. And still it's hilarious. That was a fun. That was a fun one. Oh, boy, and your, your wife made you confess that on radio. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> well, now we know. My uh, husband, the plastic bag. That's right. <laughs> Listen, we're going to end on this high note, but only this uh, first segment. We're having, actually, I'm going to ask one more question. Hey, Linda, what about, you, you, you guys, what about the work and the voices, by the way, the two of you did for Second Life and uh, Lip Flap, and what does that have to do with Florence? Oh, well, this is really David's story, and I, I, he just dragged me into it, thankfully, because it was so much fun. He wrote a script, he created his, his um, um, uh, what's the word, avatar, uh-huh. and then there was an avatar, someone else was doing, controlling the avatar in the story with him, but I was the voice of that avatar. Yeah. So once they shot it in Second Life, which was, I'll let David describe to you, we voiced it, and it was so successful it was really quite fun and it very much an inside joke to people who know these alternate realities and we it, it was posted and won awards all over Europe it was installed in a, in galleries and museums because it was such a treat mm. and uh, David you tell them about wherever you all were recording this and how it happened yes please well it, well, it was uh, Second Life if you don't know is a, is a 3D virtual reality environment that uh, I got very interested in oddly enough as a photographer because when you're in a 3D space like that, you can place your camera anywhere. So it was kind of an interesting thing. And so I got interested in what's called machinima, which is making films within these 3D environments. Uh And uh, I put together this little piece called Lip Flap because in in Second Life at that time, there was no voice. It was only you could type, you know, messages back and forth, but there was no uh, way to use voice. And so the whole premise of this is these two people are talking and suddenly one of them realizes that their lips aren't moving. Mm. And so, <laughs> and, and a lot of sort of uh, hilarity ensues. But, um, but David was in New York. Yeah, the, the, that was the difficult part because I'm in New York City. Mm. The actress who's playing the, the role is in, she's a semiotics professor in Sydney, Australia. And the other guy who's playing her boyfriend in the piece is a writer in L.A. So I'm in New York, he's in L.A., she's in Sydney, and we're all connecting on a server in San Francisco to make a movie. Yes. And it was a very strange uh, production (laughs) environment. (laughs) But it all came together. She did a Shakespeare play there, too, that was pretty funny, because sometimes if a a person's computer crashed, the character disappeared. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was literally, we're literally standing in the wings waiting to make our entrance, and the guy that I'm working with suddenly just literally disappeared (laughs) because his his computer crashed. That's a problem you don't normally run into on stage. Exactly. Exactly, but it is but it is very much like live theater in that anything can happen. All right, um, that's for sure. Yeah, you got it. We're having a wonderful time. We're going to take a short break. However, we will definitely be back. We are talking with David and Linda Londra 
a long list of accomplishments, achievements, uh, contributions to theater, television, video, voiceover, film. I think I've covered it all. And they've been married forever through the whole thing. So stay with us. We'll be right back. It's going to be fun. Don't go away. This is so much fun. I love working with the fabulous Marcello Rolando with me on the other side of the camera, or microphone in this case. For years, Marcello was a splendid addition to the cast of Another World on NBC. He was the owner, manager, man in charge of Tops, our swanky restaurant in Bay City. And as a producer and director on the show, I got to see him more often than most and was thrilled to have him on board. I depended on him to take charge, which he did with a plum. Our cast, including the lovely Linda Dano, Stephen Schnetzer, Charles Keating, all remarked how special he was to have there. He made everyone, regular cast members and guest actors alike, feel special and welcome. Marcello adds a touch of class to whatever he does, and we were thrilled to have him with us on our show for such a long time. He is so thoughtful now to reach out to his peers for a conversation about how we're all surviving this pandemic. It's a challenge, but with each other's help and support, we will survive with more stories to tell. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and my guest today, my delightful, talented, longtime married guests, Linda and David Londra in New York City. Linda and I have worked together quite a bit. David and I have passed one another working in many of the same places. And in any case, so it's the first time I'm, I know that the, all three of us have had an opportunity to talk. And this sort of started, as I alluded to at the beginning of the, the first segment, because I've been reaching out to friends in the business, but in politics and, and, and education and medicine that I know, to find out what people are doing during this time of COVID-19. How are they uh, surviving? How are they thriving? How are they, uh, uh, how are they keeping their sense of humor? And of course, I thought, I'm sure you know by now the reason why, I thought of Linda and David and thought I would reach out and ask if they'd come on the show, and they did. So let's take a moment and, and tell us, Linda, how, how does one keep their sense of humor, keep their sanity, and, and how are things in New York City? Well, we're the luckiest people in the world because we have each other and we actually like each other after 50 years yeah. of marriage. So that's a miracle in itself. But we we enjoy reading and David reads out loud to me every evening, which is just uh, so wonderful. Wow. And, and we never took that much time to do it before. We're doing it now. We're both of us are reflecting on our lives and, and what we've done because it's a it's a moment. It's really become a reflective time for us. Yeah. Because we don't go outside much. Being in Times Square, in living in Times Square in New York City, is a very frightening place to be right now. So we will walk. I'll go out for a walk every day, but that's it. Everything else is a liver to the door. But we're trying to. I'm trying to stay in touch with family. I have a lot of family, a lot of nieces and nephews. I'm trying to stay in touch to make sure they're okay, and if we can help in any way. And neighbors that we pass, and we all immediately back up six feet. Mm. Although our impulse is to run to each other and hug each other, mm. and we can't. Yes. So we're unlearning our our social habits and and relearning new ones to keep each other safe. But I think for us, it's about quality time mm. and that we've rarely take the time to do in life. 
previously. Yes. And now I think it's going to be a real regular part of, of our lives because it's it's just so enriching. So that's, and we, I just feel sorry for all our friends who are single who just have themselves to talk to and the walls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that must be extremely difficult. Um, I have friends who literally just say they're losing their minds. And I, I, I should let David talk. I don't, I don't feel that. I feel uh, that we've been lucky to have this time. And everything happens for a reason, I suppose. Yes. Well, we, we have a, an advantage in that we, the last, I don't know how many years now, we, we work together. Uh-huh. So we are often working together 24-7 anyway. So in many ways, these days are not that much unlike the time before. So yes. that makes the transition, I think, quite a bit easier for the for us. But, yes. um, so that's a big help because a lot of people are, haven't had the opportunity to spend that much time with their significant other. Yes. And that can be problematic. I just, well, I finished a, a six of a series of six videos that I was working on fr- between uh, last December directing and, and doing post and I finished on March 11th, feeling that this thing was closing in on us, and had to learn, which I love doing now that I've done it, uh, how to edit remotely. I, I'm very much a director who's in the studio next to the editor on anything I direct on camera, but but this time the, the studio is 20 miles away, and the editor was there, and I was in my home studio, and he set it up. However, he's a genius. He's a genius. Jordan, shout out to you. He set it up so that I could see the computer on which he was working in the studio and I could give him time codes and exactly the different cuts that I wanted and he just put them all together and it really went surprisingly well for a 20th century person working in the 21st century until <laughs> until the music had to be added and then just wasn't working in sync so I had to tell him what to do and I trust him as I always do and then he would send it to me and I could tweak it but I don't know if we call these silver linings but but certainly learning to, to communicate with one another and look each other in the eye. Zoom does that to you, doesn't it? Just look each other yeah, in the yeah. eye. I miss that from directing theater, you know, because there's a lot of that. But anyway, it, it's terrific, by the way, how how often our paths have crossed, I must say. Uh, not always working together, but sort of crisscrossing, involving the same people, places, and shows sometimes. But for instance, Linda. It's remarkable. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. And you... you, you um, uh, for instance, you you directed hundreds of episodes on The Guiding Light and All My Children and Another World, and of course, you directed me on Another World. T- t- <laughs> t- tell us about, I think I was on All My Children too, wouldn't that be funny? I, I don't know, I know we didn't know each other then, but in any case, um, tell us about what that's like. I mean, I know you and David and I know, but the people listening, what is that day-to-day on a national television set like? I, even as I ask the question, I remember you coming out of the control room, but I won't go there. You tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on which hat I'm wearing. Yes, right. If I'm the producer or the director, they're very different. Yes. Although, being a producer certainly gives a director a certain advantage. So I, I could do things and gamble with things as a director that yes. others were not allowed to do because it cost time. Yes. But it heightened my awareness of time and the restriction of time more than anything yes. on earth ever could have. Yes. It was very hard to learn 
fast because I didn't know anything. I was one of those lucky people that Gail Kobe, who was one of the most brilliant executive producers ever in daytime, she asked me to come and direct on Guiding Light, and she said, I'll train you to direct and produce and to take my job. And I went, why? I run a theater company. And she did that and changed our lives uh, significantly. So it was very hard. I had to move faster than I had ever moved, and I ever thought I could, but I did. And it was long hours and exhausting, and I enjoyed every Mm -hmm. single minute of it. It was exciting. It was challenging. I was working on the show when the first attack on the World Trade Center happened Mm -hmm. and was in a car on my way to Brooklyn and we had to deal with that. And what do you do? You've got a show that has to be done every day, no matter what. And we got to show up that day. And it was, it was a serious challenge and, and knew we all had to get creative and we all had to solve solutions and we all had to do jobs that weren't our jobs necessarily, but nobody cared. We just did what had to get done. And that's kind of the way daytime is. You do what has to be done to get the show done. One show, one hour show, Every day, yes. and I there's loved a, it. There's um, a comparison that uh, we, we, because we teach acting, uh-huh. uh, that we talk to our students about. If you're doing a feature film today, you're probably going to do three pages. Mm. That's the average mm-hmm. of your script. You'll, you're maybe ninety page, hundred page script. You're going to work on three pages. Yes, that's sort of the average. If you're doing primetime television, they're going to try to do eight or ten pages yes. in a day. <laughs> yes, Because yes. You've got, you're going to get an hour done, and you've got seven to ten days to do that hour. Mm-hmm. But in daytime, you're going to do 80 pages yes. today. 80 pages today, 80 pages tomorrow, mm-hmm. 80 pages the next day, five days a week, and then you get two days off, and then you start over again. Yes. And you do that 52 weeks a year. Yes. There is no hiatus. There's no rest. And then there's so also... an astounding amount of material to have to turn around in uh, uh, every single day. Absolutely. And, I and insisted we had a break at Christmas. When I, my first year on the show on, on Another World, because I was only on Guiding Light briefly, I really sort of trained there and it worked out perfectly that I then was able to go to Another World because there's a difference when you're training and when you're actually in the job and it, it just, it helped give me more authority <laughs> when yes. I went to Another World. But I said, so when, when are we off for Christmas? And they said, no, we're not off. And I went, what do you mean? (laughs) And they didn't take any time off for the holiday. They said, Christmas Day, we won't work Christmas Day. I went, oh, that's nonsense. So we figured out how to get a week off at Christmas by doing six six shows in five days, several weeks during the summer or or early fall so that we'd be ready to take a chunk of time off come Christmas. But they're workaholics in daytime and Anyone who hasn't done it is a bit of a snob about it because it's all done so quickly. You fly by the seat of your pants, and and everybody, nobody likes that initially. Then you get to addicted to it. Yes. And the truth is, you keep doing it because every day you keep, oh, I'm going to get that tomorrow. I'm going to get that tomorrow. Mm. And you do. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing quite like it. It's thrilling. I, I, I should stop talking about uh, that. No, but no, but <laughs> I could go but, on forever. Uh, no, but it was good. It was my next question after what David said made me think of six and five. So thank you. But explain that again so everybody knows six and five. Well, I- 
every day we had to tape an hour show and deliver it to the network. We literally had to go out to Burbank so they could cut the, the promos and to the network so they could put, they could get prepare it. And we did our edit the day after. And so it, every day you have to produce an hour of programming. Then with, to do six and fives, instead of doing just five hours a week, Monday through Friday, we had to do six shows in those five days. Mm-hmm. So we take the sixth show and break it up and put it into the schedule so that they were called segments. And we would then do one and a fifth show on Monday and one and a fifth <laughs> shows on Tuesday and until we had six shows when we finished that week instead of just five. You know, and I remember that so well. I'm so happy to find out that you are the one who came up with that for Another World because I always thought I was most impressed. What a clever idea. Where did that come from? Now I know. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I can take sole credit for it, but nobody argued. Okay. <laughs> well, Emmy nominated Linda, did you direct David on camera at any time? Uh, not on the soaps. Um, no, not on Another World. Do that. How about the other shows? But, like... Because actually, actually, Procter & Gamble didn't like couples working together. They really did, didn't like him being on the show as much as he was, but he was so favored in the edit department Everybody kept calling on him for the, whatever voiceover work they needed. Yes. There was a broadcast announcer. There was a, they all wanted David because he would often rewrite the copy and make I, it better. I, I was the voice of KBAY. <laughs> and he was a broadcast announcer for Channel 25 here in New York. Yes. I mean, he was an experienced announcer, so he was good for that. So anyway, they didn't like that. But I did direct. The first time we di- I directed him was in college, and we almost separated before we got married. <laughs> It was a very <laughs> difficult journey, but once we learned how much we respected each other and we sort of wrestled that down in our own way, we both became fans of each other and we could then work together. Yes. So it took it took time because uh, directors tend to be bossy people and add a producer to that for David. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but what about what about Homicide and the Beat? You didn't uh, you weren't involved in that when he was there? No, not at, at the same time. Oh, well, we gotcha. did for the Beat. We did produce a web. We did a whole prequel before that was happening. Of uh, there was, what, what did you call? What was it called, David? Was it a web? Was it a webisode? Well, there were web, there were a number of webisodes involved, but yeah, it was it was a prequel to the TV show. It was an interesting concept because the the show was about a couple of beat cops, Mark Ruffalo and Derek Cecil, and they were these two beat cops fresh uh, in New York City, and that's what the television series was about. So what we did as a run up to it was their time in the in the academy. We did uh, a web page in which one of them they would write about what happened to them in the academy and there were links to like so you could listen to police radios in uh, California and Texas and a bunch of places and it all you hooked up with the FBI and NBC uh-huh. law enforcement uh, related links and plus there were little webisodes that we shot with the two of them on the subway and around the city so yes. it was a fun project it was it was an enormous project. I was on the phone every day for many days 
with lawyers from the from the network, from the studio, from the producing and the writing team. Everybody saying, "How are you going to do this?" And you know, I so always at that time the, the the web was new enough that there weren't any contracts. Yes. No. Yeah. So all everybody wanted to figure out, okay. Like we know this is going to happen, but how is it going yeah. to happen? So David and I had to really, really uh, shore up our, our our forces together because we ended up doing just about everything one can do on a show. Mm-hmm. But the most exciting time directing David, to get back to your question, is The Gospel According to Mark Twain. Yes. It, we did it first on stage, and then we took it to the Edinburgh Festival, which is a whole story unto itself. You <laughs> just can't believe how that happened. And and then we came back and we ended up shooting um, a piece of Mark Twain's called Gene. And it's the last chapter of his official, his original autobiography. Uh-huh. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And we turned it into a film and we shot it at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in New London, Connecticut. Yes. And David was, uh, David was in that. Uh-huh. And it was thrilling. It was just, and we, again, he was producing and he was acting and I was directing and I was producing. (laughs) We were doing everything, but with a team of about a hundred people. It was enormous. It was our first film and it it was thrilling because we, there were no, there were, what I think people often expect us to say is how difficult it was and how we nearly killed each other and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) That just didn't happen. Uh. It just didn't. We really, yeah, we, were fortunate. The work. we were fortunate in that we got all that out of the way very early on in our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we, we didn't have to revisit those moments that's, later on. That's right. Excellent. <laughs> Listen, you know, David mentioned teaching on camera, acting for camera. Um, you did that at uh, William Esper Studio. Uh, you taught at Primary Stages, one of the theaters where I directed a couple of shows, and, and of course, the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. And, but what about the Theater Guild? It kind of foreshadowed your combo careers, if you will, working together on so many projects. Talk to oh, us about did. the Theater Guild. I mean, as I think you told me, Linda, it was truly a force in theater, television, and film. So, I don't know, do we start as early as Oklahoma, or what do we do? Talk to Tell us. Oklahoma was the production that changed the face of, of the American musical in the States. And that was produced by them. It was the first book musical. Yeah. Yes. And they introduced Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yes. Roger, they introduced <laughs> Eugene O'Neill, George Bernard Shaw, the legion of magnificent writers they introduced in this city is was staggering. And we ended up just by accident there. When we moved here, that was our first we were there the day after we well, we landed the next day we had to get a place to live and we both and we got jobs and we were working. And David got cast in the film they were doing at the time and they but the theater My guild first union card yes that was very nice oh, well, they yes. did everything they changed the face of american the, of the theater they they the united states steel hour was one of my favorite shows uh-huh. ever uh-huh. on television and they produced that and they did they did films they did yes. judgment at nuremberg they did the child is waiting they did the pawnbroker the pawnbroker yes. they did 
amazing work in whatever area they got in. And when I reflect on that, I did not realize it, of course, but I think it did have an impact on the fact that David and I felt we could do anything we wanted to do. They mm. did, so why can't we? Yes. So whatever yep. form a project came to us and whatever form it took, we did that. And it was not because of of, of of formal training. We just I just have a bachelor's from college, and but we came to New York and then just started working, and that became the graduate work that was yes. extensive. Yes. But the Theater Guild influenced everything, and they we were their associate producers. Yes. They just liked us, obviously, because they hired us from the day we met, and we've worked we worked off and on for them for probably ten years, mm. even while we were doing our own theater they gave us an office in their on their floor on 46th street off the corner of broadway their logo is still above the door there they they were uh, unbelievable uh philip langner was uh, a major force and they we for we were the social producers on uh, uh, six eight ten we don't even know how many cruises that were legitimate theater cruises with helen hayes and james MacArthur working together as mother and son doing a play and it, Patricia Neal was always our host she was she took care, charge of every evening mm-hmm. and Vivica Linford and Lynn Redgrave and Cyril Richard and George Rose and the list is staggering mm-hmm. we took eight big stars and two workhorse young actors every trip and we would do 10 shows in two weeks at sea and we built a truss. We took the whole theater with us. That was David's brilliance. He would pack that truck and get it down to wherever we were leaving. And he and Herbertson and Helen Pond, who were brilliant theater designers, made a stage every night for every show, and we did a different show every night. It was amazing. It was insane. Yes. <laughs> it was amazingly insane. <laughs> But we were young. Yes. We were young, and uh, it was it was really an amazing company to be in, to be there with Josh Logan. Yes. You know, yes. Telling stories about directing on Broadway and with you know Ann Jackson and Eli Wallach and wonderful, wonderful. Oh, Julia, yeah. when once they, Raul, yeah. they, we couldn't get into port in South America, something went wrong and they didn't have a slip for the ship, and so Philip and I were on the phone to New York because there were no cell phones then, <laughs> and we'd have to call New York to call to call Car- Caracas, I think it was, and to get to try to get in, and we spent all day doing that, and finally the only way to transfer people, because we had actors we had to get off that ship mm. for shows they had to fly back to, Yes. and actors we had to pick up and these actors we had to pick up was Vivica Linfers and her daughter Lynn Redgrave and her husband John Clark and their two kids wow. and we literally they sent a little tender out to the ship and because the waters were then rough it was later in the day they had to put huge leather straps around their midriffs and haul them up the side of the ship. Oh my God. And Raul Julia was on the top filming it because he got the new camera. <laughs> was, he was having a great time. Yeah. It was unbelievable. <laughs> well, listen, do you ever wonder, I've got to ask this, how is it that the two of you got to work together so often like like with Levinson, Fontana, and all the people you've mentioned today, on such special projects while producing films and documentaries of your own, and, by the way, staying happily married. What's the secret? 
I'd write a book if I could answer that one. Yeah. <laughs> Our students ask us that all the time. And I think I think I answered it earlier, and I really believe, because that was the thought I gave to it, because our kids ask us about it. And I said, you know, I think it's mutual respect for one another. We respect each other. We love each other's work. We are a good combo in that we created the theater, because the two of I ran the front of the house, he ran the back of the house. Wow. It, it, in overviews. We both crossed that line a thousand times. But we learned how to do everything mm -hmm. and we but we always took time and as you know of late we travel a lot yes. and getting away just the two of us away from the whole world is magical mm. and so we've learned to listen to one another and respect one another and love what we do and we don't do it if we don't love it and that's it well, that's good advice for, for life in general, not just marriage, but life in general, and certainly for anything as uh, as demanding as a career in theater and film and television. I wonder, David, how can one see your photography? Most of the stuff that I do, so personal stuff, is ends up uh, posted on Facebook. Okay. So you can always uh, look for David Launder on Facebook and see a lot of my work there. I have thousands and thousands of photographs online, but they're all there. I don't have sites. Specifically, okay. I, I you know I have things for this project and for that project, but I've uh, you know it's like the you know the, the cobbler's kids and not having any shoes kind of yeah. thing. Something gives me a hard time all the time because I don't I don't have a personal site up. You know, yeah. we don't have a website. The websites weren't the thing when we were doing all of our work, uh -huh. and so as we had been trying in the last ten years to slow down and learn how to say no. We, David keeps saying, we don't want a website. We're not looking for work. We don't want more work. And I'm like, that's true, that's true. So well, you have to want to reach us, but we're, on, we're online. We, we do not yeah. do a, a, a website. Maybe someday. Well, what about Facebook? What's your Facebook page? What, what, how are you on Facebook? I'm there as David Laundra, L-A-U-N-D-R-A. -A. And you see hundreds of my photographs there. You know, if you're interested in theatrical photography, I can give you several sites that where I have theater pictures up, work I do for individuals. Most of this stuff sort of ends up online, but they're specifically for the jobs and not general sites for the public. He enjoys the photography so much, he doesn't want it to become a business. Uh -huh. And I said, okay, I got it, then just do it. You know what that means, Marcello. I do. When you turn it into a business, it's something else. Exactly. No, I no, I understand entirely. Listen, this has been grand, and I love the way you were jumping to my questions even before I could get to them. I love that. Well, thank you so much for speaking directly to each of us as individuals and not just as the laundress. Our kids call us the laundress, and that's fine. But we each have such different personalities and careers. I appreciate your respect for each of us, and thank you. Well, that, it didn't occur to me to do anything else, but you're quite welcome. We have been talking to the individuals as well as duo of Linda and David Londra, and we wish you all the best and, and wish everybody in New York City. And, okay, Linda, David? Indeed. There's more to do. Exactly. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Marcello. All the best. Bye now. Bye-bye. Goodbye. I think that what you're doing is great, Marcello. You know, being cooped up, being quarantined, it gets to you after a while. And you need an upbeat voice to let you know that, that life goes on, that things will be okay. 
even with Linda and I, we've been together for almost half a century now. And for a lot of that time, we work together as well. We teach together. We're together literally 24-7. But still, there's times when it gets to you and when you need somebody to, to help perk you up a little bit. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do that. Oh, also, I'd like to put in a plug for an organization called uh, Invisible Hands. Invisible Hands will find someone, will find a volunteer in your neighborhood who can come and make that run to the drugstore for you or get you that thing from the grocery store that you need. They're really a wonderful organization. Um, we support them. And I hope that uh, other people will, too. Whether you want to support people who are helping out New Yorkers or whether you're somebody who needs that helping hand every now and then. Uh, Invisible Hands, a good group. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. It's the lack of testing, stupid. Spotlighting GOP COVID-19 charade. Whether or not White House valet serving meals to our commander-in-chief while testing COVID-19 positive infected Donald Trump, two things are true. Because of Trump's lying to himself as much as he does to us, most of we the people don't have the luxury of being tested. And in 14 days, Donald Trump will still be too sick to be President of the United States. Notwithstanding Bill Barr's DOJ, justice and our Constitution demand that we petition the government for a redress of grievances. For instance, why are agencies like FEMA and CDC specifically created to minimize public devastation in times of natural catastrophe, walking on political eggshells and revising life-saving guidelines instead of ensuring the public's welfare? until it is immediately apparent, with plans of implementation in place, that a glut of farmers' cows and milk, chickens and eggs, potatoes, vegetables, and pigs is a solution in need of expedited transportation to struggling food banks, online college students, stay-at-home children, women, and America's increasing unemployed in the wealthiest nation on earth, for some, we are all in this together, like our president, is painfully offensive to all forced to linger in their cars for hours, awaiting food to feed their families. However, we cannot afford to delay until the swamp drains itself, or liberal reason balances the extremes of progression and conservative regression, nor for the legal replacement of right-wing governors or aging out of CEOs who don't care how many gullible constituents or low-wage employees get sick or die from bigger bang-for-the-boss's-buck apathetic mindset at factory farms, meat-packing plants, or e-commerce online storefronts camouflaging mass indifference with coronavirus-coated cardboard. When insisting automatic weapons guarantee the freedom to desert pro-life, conservatives' right-to-life edicts, the right to spit on masks of uniformed police, and the liberty to open non-essential businesses during a pandemic, who's benefiting? Who plays the village idiot card to perfection? GOP PAC-paid freelancers? Hedging conservative CEO bets? Or a political pawn reinstating essential pandemic task force because it is so popular? Perhaps the root of all anti-reality evil is Trump's fantasies du jour, 
Layered in the conceit that voters haven't a clue regarding his negligence in providing PPEs and testing. But suppose his McConnell-enabled disregard is an intentional attempt to determine 2020 GOP victories. Why is it that Trump pence think they can fool some of the people all of the time? What if the right, corporatism's underbelly board members, are the nemesis of inconvenient scientific facts? Why are case and casualty numbers rising in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and Wisconsin? Are elected conservative Republicans really so short-sighted that they are willing to gamble with the lives of Americans who desperately need their employment income, no matter how onerous the work environment was before COVID-19, and now even more dangerous for GOP-dominated states and municipalities, historically more dependent on the tax dollars of America's left-of-center electorate? Are all of us living within America's borders left with only one choice? Placing our faith in reason, in each other, and the better angels of scientific fact, or suffer the consequences of corporatism's Trumpism greed? Who among us still dare to profane love thy neighbor as thyself by denying the connected dots between prison coronavirus deaths and 25-year-old Georgia Jogger's murder? and the connection between the $800,000 deal for Trump's drug deal and Nomi Startup's $5 million grant from Utah's governor, or the connection between Blue Flame Medical's failure to deliver and the GOP, or Arizona Governor's Arizona State University's COVID-19 research reversal and Trump's ultra-conservative FEMA model deflating testing or the connection between Bill Barr's FBI reversal and saving Donald Trump from an election-year pardon of Michael Flynn. Until we evaluate human life not by human income, but by our return on investments in human kindness with a bottom line yielding human decency, our lack of emergency readiness, safe food, clean water, fresh air, affordable health care, protective stockpiles for all caregivers, medical professionals or not, and safe working conditions for all employees, regardless of income bracket, educational level, or color of skin. Answers that foresee, prevent, and manage emergencies before they decimate life as we know it will be drowned out by the nonsense of the unknowing, the uncaring, and the profit hoarders of corporatism's control of Congress and the cajoled. Believing in what the second Americans ensconced in most of our Constitution, let us now manifest our exceptional potential challenged by Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. FDR's The Only Thing We Have to Fear is Fear Itself, and JFK's Ask What You Can Do for Your Country. Older men have always sacrificed young adults to other wars, but with coronavirus, the enemy is our complacent lack of preparation, lack of political foresight, and lack of equitable compassion. It is GOP arrogance and the ignorance of those in lockstep with it that's overwhelming American democracy. Perhaps that's why COVID-19 is warning us we must do better. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.
Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the Donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard around the world.